Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Disaster Artist. The Disaster Artist was written by Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell and published in 2013. And the film adaptation uh, came out in a year that I did not write down (laughs) and was directed by James Franco. Yes. That part I do know. Give me one second and I will give you that year. Cool. 2017. Got it. (laughs) Wasn't the build up to that. Nailed it. Yeah, I I totally stuck the landing on that one. No doubt. Um, So yeah, we are doing The Disaster Artist, uh, which is... It's such an interesting adaptation. I think it's one of the most meta adaptations we've done. So meta. Because, so it is, the book is the true story, okay? So this is a a real story of the people who made The Room, a film, an original film, not an adaptation. Yeah. And the cult status of this movie and, like, the craziness of its production. So this was all written by the one co-star who played Mark in the film. Yeah, Greg. Greg, yes. And then uh, this book came out and then a movie was made based on the book, which recounts like the making of this movie. Yeah. And so it's like (laughs) this wild, absurd mashing of like based on a book that was based on true events about this movie that they're making in this other movie. Yeah. And I mean, it's helpful to just think of the the book and movie, The Disaster Artist, as just being a behind the scenes look at an actual movie that was made. Yeah. So that's how I think about it in my mind. But I mean, I think hopefully all our listeners are at least familiar with the room Mm -hmm. um, and know what it is, but it truly is one of the weirdest films, if you could even call it a film (laughs) um, that I've ever seen. Truly bizarre. Um, And even the book kind of opens up talking about it being like a surrealist piece of work almost. It's like such a odd I, I don't know, stream of conscience, like, unedited. Yeah. Uh, mo- you know what I mean? Like, if you did free writing, you know what I mean? Where you're not thinking about what you're writing and you're just going with your thoughts. And then if you took that and, like, translated it directly to film. Yeah. Without anyone, like, trying to stop fixing you. it yeah. or, like, editing it or, like, anything, like, typos and everything and, like, no story. Like, that's what this movie feels like. Definitely. Um, And Ian and I, actually, we have a bonus episode for mm-hmm. all our patrons who support us on Patreon where we just strictly talk about The Room because... It is literally, it's so bizarre, it's so random, and we really wanted to have the space to just talk about the movie. Yeah. Because in this, we're going to be talking a lot lot about, like, so much behind-the-scenes stuff, the true story about Greg and Tommy and their relationship and how this this movie, The Room, was made. Um, So we really wanted a space to just... Just go go <laughs> like, off on the room a little bit. Yeah, like talk about it as a movie, like yeah. on its own yeah. without getting into the behind the scenes stuff. It's just like if you saw this movie with no context. Yeah, that's kind of what we how we approached it. So if you really want more of our thoughts about the movie as a movie, become a patron. Um, it's hugely helpful to us. We 
uh, don't like doing ads on this podcast. So if you like the podcast and you want to support us, that is the best way to do it. And you get access to all our bonus episodes um, that are kind of like this, either if there's another adaptation about the book we're talking about, or in this case, a space for us to just talk about the wildness of the room. So uh, definitely check that out. Another thing I wanted to mention is that this is a patron request. Yeah. So our um, wonderful patron, Jack, who's from the UK, um, asked us to do this episode. And we are super excited that you suggested this one, Jack, because I wouldn't have necessarily thought about it. No. And I mean, we're obviously going to be getting into it, but like I was so shocked by like um, how just interesting and well-written this book was and like what an interesting dive. Cause I mean, you know, on the surface it's like, Oh, the, the wild uh, shenanigans of the worst movie ever made. Like I genuinely wasn't expecting much from the book. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's so much to talk about in terms of like the story and the people involved. And you're and like, Oh, this is probably going to be a crazy story. And you're like, I had no fucking idea. <laughs> like <laughs> it's yeah. literally like crazier than you could ever imagine. Uh, so thanks again to Jack for suggesting this. We will read a little portion of his response on the book and movie at the end of the episode. Um, so that's fun. And I also want to mention, too, that the movie version of this kind of starts out the film in an interesting way where it's just a bunch of actors kind of talking about the movie The Room. Yeah, like playing themselves like in an interview setup. Yeah. Uh, who were some of the people? Kristen I, Bell, Adam Scott. Yeah. Um, J.J. Abrams, Keegan-Michael Key, just like a lot of like well-known famous people. And just saying like, and really acknowledging the fact that like, so many like quote unquote good well-made movies like in my mind so many of the movies get nominated for oscars every year yeah that two years later you're like oh yeah what um, was that film yeah yeah you're just like oh yeah i guess that was around and maybe some people liked it but like the room not even despite all of its flaws but because of them has stuck around yeah and just kind of how unique and interesting that is and how so many people like revere it now because of that yeah and it has this cult status I agree. Yeah. So I, I think the movie starts out well, kind of giving us this context for this wild story. Yeah. This weird, like, contradiction of a movie and its popularity. Yeah. Uh, but the both uh, book and movie kind of start off similarly, which is like the first meeting of Greg and Tommy. Greg is 19, I believe. Yeah. In San Francisco. And he has a dream of becoming an actor. Which began when he first saw Home Alone as a child, <laughs> and he wrote his own uh, fan sequel. fiction sequel, which sounded amazing. <laughs> and so he's done some modeling at this point, like even in Europe. Yeah. And but he he really wants to act, and he's taking an acting class in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And this is where he meets the famous Tommy Wiseau. We're gonna pronounce it Wiseau. It's probably wrong. It's probably wrong. <laughs> I think there are other pronunciations I've heard, but that's what we're going with. And Tommy is doing a performance of a streetcar named Desire, and he's playing the role of Stanley, and he's just doing the whole part where he just screams Stella, but he's just going like apeshit. <laughs> and it's funny, the book scene and the movie kind of play out the same, where he's just like writhing around, throwing shit. He like climbs up the wall at one point. He technically has a scene partner who's just like standing there. Yeah. I really loved the way the movie began. Um... With this, because it, it starts with him, you know, coming down from the seats 
and like the camera's kind of like panning around him. Yeah. And like it's kind of he his face is concealed. Mm-hmm. It's a really great introduction to him as a character. Uh and in the movie before this, we see Greg do his own kind of sad attempt at a scene where he's like yeah. very nervous. Yeah, stiff. clammed up, like not doing well, just seems like very afraid. And I really do, because this is a dynamic talked about in the book as well, which is Greg did feel kind of self-conscious, was, you know, having trouble letting loose. And even though Tommy wasn't a good actor, he was like fearless. He just did whatever he wanted. And in fact, in the book, he talks back a lot to the acting coach. Yeah. Who everyone was scared shitless of. But he was just like, no, I disagree with you. Like, I think I'm doing it right. And Greg was, like, both amused, but, like, genuinely really interested in him. Yeah, a little bit in awe. And they kind of form this friendship where they want to do a scene together, and then they start hanging out more. And they have kind of this weird dynamic. Like Ian was saying, like, Greg kind of admires him for his fearlessness. Yeah. And he's just sort of, like, weird. And it it allows Greg to be his own weird self without inhibitions because you know, compared to Tommy, he's, like, normal. Yeah, and, like, Tommy will embarrass him a lot, but, like, I do think it's, like, a very interesting dynamic, especially at the start, where you can almost understand why Greg puts up with so many of Tommy's weird eccentricities. Yeah. And also, Tommy is very supportive, which is another good quality. Like, Greg's mom uh, has been very... um, Dismissive. Yeah, dismissive of his acting career. But Tommy's just very openly like, yeah, if you have a dream, you have to go for it. Yeah. And he's kind of this just like uninhibited like embodiment of pursuing your dream like at all costs. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Tommy's appearance and whole general vibe. (laughs) So he has dyed jet black hair that's like down to like past his shoulders. And he has this weird... Eastern European type accent that's impossible to place. And he keeps claiming that he's from New Orleans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And another thing he's like very vague about is his age. Yeah. There's a scene where Greg's mom is like kind of confronting him and asking him questions. And she asks how old he is. And he's like, I'm Greg's age. And she's like, you're 19. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In the movie, she's like, yeah. And I just turned 14. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, so, like, he's kind of this weird enigma and kind of, like, all this, like, these mysterious elements. He's also, like, vampiric, if that's a word. Definitely. He's very, like, a a human vampire, very pasty and weird and just kind of, like, sinister in an odd way. Yeah, um, has really weird hours, is up super late at night. And he, his physique is described as kind of interesting because he's alternatingly, like, ripped And then also looks like he's dying. Yeah, definitely at points, like, I was pretty convinced that he was, like, on steroids of some kind. Mm. I remember at one point he, much later when he's, like, even more ripped after Greg hasn't seen him for a while, they describe his kind of stomach jutting out a bit, which I think is, like, a, um, uh, a symptom of if you're on steroids. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I have a feeling there was something going on there. Mm-hmm. And James Franco, who directed this movie and plays Tommy, does a really great job of capturing like Tommy's accent and just the way that he talks. Yeah. And also kind of his weird characteristics like the ha-ha, like the ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, James Franco really uh, gets in a good performance in this movie. I think yeah. he does a really good job. Yeah. The only thing I will complain about in terms of James Franco is his face is too fresh and too young. He definitely, yeah, because I mean, Tommy Wiseau is this super, and but I mean, then again, Tommy Wiseau's face, like, I don't think could ever be oh, really. Oh, no. Because he's got, he like looks older, but also like maybe like he's had plastic surgery. There's like this weird melty quality to his face. Yeah, someone said like an action figure you put in the microwave, <laughs> which I really love. <laughs> yeah, so like James Franco really does capture like the characteristics, the way he talks, but he can't capture like the horrible, like creepy sad face of Tommy. Yeah, yeah, which is like a quality that's like almost impossible to totally grasp. Definitely. So in terms of their friendship, like they really bond over James Dean and kind of idolizing him as like the perfect actor and kind of the one that they're trying to embody. They have this whole um, part in the story where they go to James Dean's where he died in a car crash. Yeah. Um, And in the movie, it's really significant because they make kind of this promise to each other that they're going to pursue their acting dreams and like help each other and like kind of hold each other accountable. Yeah. And this is like another quality of Tommy that Greg admires is like he Tommy was the one who's like, let's fucking go. Like, let's drive there. Yeah. Greg's like, "Ah, it's a few hours away. And Tommy's like, fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, So I I think both versions do a really good job of like bridging that gap and letting you believe how they would form this friendship. And see Tommy's charms. And there is another thing that I had to think about too, and that the movie does a good job at reminding you is like Greg is a little simple kind of in the movie. Uh, like him talking about like, oh, yeah, Home Alone inspired me to become an actor is clearly like kind of a funny <laughs> line to make him look kind of a little dumb. Yeah. But I mean, when you're reading the book, I do think you kind of forget Greg is 19. Yeah. Like he's very young and like very impressionable. And I do think sometimes reading it, you're like, come on, Greg, why would you make this decision? Yeah. But like he's still a teenager. Yeah. And so I do think like even though... um which, I mean, uh, the part of Greg in the movie is played by James Franco's brother, Dave Franco. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, did you know there's a third Franco? I did know that because you told me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was speaking more vaguely because I remember telling <laughs> There is a Tom Franco, huh. which is so fucking funny. There's always like a third unfamous brother. brother. Yeah. There's like the third Hemsworth. Yeah. Uh, There's other brothers out there. there. The, the Baldwins. There's oh, like two yeah. additional Baldwins who you've never heard of. And now there's a third Franco. Wow. Uh, but so this the fourth is, Jonas brother. The fourth Jonas brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor what's his name. Yeah. Uh, so this is where there's kind of a big split between the book and movie. So essentially... Around this time, Tommy tells Greg about an apartment that he owns in L.A. Yeah. And this is kind of our first big hint in the story that, like, Tommy has a lot of money and Mm -hmm. it's unclear what he does for a living or why he has money or this apartment. And why he has two apartments in two very expensive cities to live in. Yeah. But he offers Greg... Uh, so in the movie, they both just agree to move down to L.A. together to pursue acting and they yeah. become roommates like immediately. Mm-hmm. But in the book, it's very different. He offers to rent Greg this apartment uh, so he can go down to L.A. and pursue his his c- career. And this is kind of a big break for Greg because Tommy's going to let him have the apartment for cheap. 
Um, so he'd be able to go down, audition for all the roles that he, you know, needs to be like close to for. So this is sort of Greg's chance to try and make it. Yeah. And whereas the movie just kind of is like, Greg does find um, an agency to represent him. Yeah. But outside of that, it's just like he's not finding any luck. Mm-hmm. But I really loved this part of the book because it kind of goes in depth a decent amount about like what his career was like. Yeah. Him getting like very small uh, roles as like extra or an extra in the background mm-hmm. uh, here and there. And then like, I think even a small part in a soap opera at one point. Yeah. And just going out to all of these auditions and how like, endless and also kind of hopeless it is to do this and live this type of life like looking for auditions trying to like you know get like someone to represent you which he eventually does but the whole process and he does eventually get a pretty significant role in a retro puppet master (laughs) i have never heard of that before everyone remembers where they were when they first saw (laughs) retro puppet master (laughs) It is funny because Greg, uh, his mom is from France. Yeah. And he speaks French really fluently and can like do the accent. So that's kind of what lands him this role. And it's interesting. This is like something that keeps coming up in the book. Like he first thinks Tommy is French. Yeah. uh, And Tommy can speak French. And there's another, uh, the one guy on set of the movie is is French too. So like, it's funny how it keeps popping up. Uh, But he gets that role because he can uh, do the French accent. And it, like, goes well, but then after that, it's kind of, like, nothing. And he also gets a small role in Patch Adams. Yeah. Which I've never seen it, but I'm almost, like, interested to watch it just to, like, spot him. Yeah. Because he actually does have a scene, kind of, with Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Wow. And it's funny reading it because you're like, wow, he's made it, right? Like, once you've had a role with Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. You have to believe that. Yeah, for sure. But, like... It's so interesting to read, like, that really didn't amount to anything in yeah. his career. And how hard it is to really, like, break into the industry. Um, in contrast, like, the movie just kind of shows both Tommy and Greg kind of spinning their wheels in L.A., not getting parts, not being able to find anything. And they have this scene where Tommy is feeling, like, really kind of dejected and lost. And they're both on this, like, balcony in their apartment, And Tommy is sort of doubting whether or not he wants to be to keep pursuing this acting dream because he feels like people don't like him, don't accept him and that he's not good enough. Yeah, I I think the movie does a really smart thing where I think, you know, watching the room and the book implies a lot of this, too. There's a lot of dialogue and references to things that are clearly references to Tommy's real life. Yeah. So like so much of the room is clearly like either things that happened to him or things he perceived happened to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And the movie plays with this by sprinkling moments like this throughout the film, like them on the roof talking. Yeah. And it's like, oh, is this the inspiration? For like the rooftop scenes in the movie. Yeah, exactly. Or there's a scene where he gets really pissed off and starts like, um, like smashing a newsstand on the street corner in kind of a weird, lazy way. And it's yeah. like, oh, is that like the freak out scene <laughs> in the movie? I just really liked all these moments where it's kind of hinting at like, was this the origin point of this part later when he made the movie? That's a good uh, thing I didn't even pick up on, but I think that is kind of cool. Yeah, but they, um, Greg kind of uses this moment to be like, remember we made this promise to each other. We're going to, we can do it. Like we can do this together. And then makes kind of the offhand comment. Like, I wish we could just make our own movie. And Tommy is like, yes, here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think the movie definitely 
creates a lot of sympathy for Tommy. Yeah. More than anything. Like, he's quirky. Yeah. But, but like, ultimately you feel bad for him because he has this dream. But because of, like, you know, the way he looks and the way he talks and things like that, like, there's just this wall that he can't penetrate in the Hollywood industry. Yeah, and the book does make reference to him taking these, like, voice classes and trying to get rid of his accent and just kind of like you do feel really bad for him in that way like him wanting to be this kind of all-american guy Mm -hmm. but not fitting that image really yeah and so the book also creates like a lot of sympathy for tommy but there's also a really darker side to tommy presented in the book and this is like probably one of the most significant divergences in the book in the movie is like the book paints a much more, a portrait of a much more complicated person. Yeah. Who is like. Disturbed. E- disturbed and equal parts uh, problematic as he is like sympathetic. And this, a lot of this comes to fruition when Tommy move, does eventually move to L.A. Uh, to kind of live in the same apartment as Greg. Yeah. Yeah. And there, Adina, you have a part to read kind of in reference to this. Yeah. They get into this fight and references have been made kind of to Tommy being like jealous of Greg and also jealous of Greg's friendship with other people, like him wanting to be like Greg's only friend, very possessive, controlling, and also like paranoid. Very paranoid. Um, And he never wants Greg to talk about him to anyone else. Like, he's very suspicious. And so they get into this fight because he feels like Greg is talking about him to this other, like, friend that he has. And he says, why you talk about me? His voice was slightly more aggressive. I don't even know what, why you talk about me to this friend. Why? You talk about Gene Shelton. You talk about football. You talk about acting. My place. Why do you talk about me? He was screaming at the windshield, hunched over his steering wheel, too disgusted to look over at me. Why do you talk about me? I thought I trust you and you talk about me. Now I was scared. Tommy had completely lost control of himself. Why was he so, what was he so afraid of? I knew then that this was how Tommy's planet operated. I wondered if the reason he didn't have any friends was that they all eventually wound up here, untethered, lost in space. Tommy, I said, I don't even know why you're so upset. Why do you do this? Why do you do this? He wasn't hearing me. He was lost in the orbit of his own rage. Look, Tommy said more calmly, and I knew instantly that he'd been preparing the speech for a while. I decide I'm moving to Los Angeles to be actor. I just want people to leave me alone. I can't have anyone around at this time. Now is time you find your own place. I cannot trust you. The feelings go away. Tommy held his thumb and forefinger apart and squeezed them shut. That was our friendship now, a molecule's width of nothing. This felt like a bad dream. Tommy was so oily with menace that all I wanted to do was run. The person whose support had meant so much to me was gone. I got out of the car and started walking away. Everything I'd worked for I thought was done. The next thing I knew, Tommy was driving beside me, urging me to get back into his car. I'm sorry, Greg, he said, gulping the words. I'm sorry I yell at you. I can trust you. You know that. You can stay in apartment. That was all this ridiculous tirade had been about. Tommy was still capable of hurting and affecting and controlling me, and knowing that he could do all of those things was, to him, the very stuff of relief. Now that Tommy had this dark assurance, all between us was, in his mind, fine. But it wasn't fine. I, knew, I now knew that everything my mom and friend had said about Tommy was right. There was something twisted and poisonous inside him, something potentially dangerous even. It was just a matter of time. That's a really good, a, a really good section. And it really gets into the meat of like 
there is this like weird like reading the book uh i mean obviously you know like greg isn't murdered or like nothing that bad no, happens no but there is like this building creepiness and eeriness to tommy where he feels very dangerous well and there in the book there's a lot of allusions to the talented mr ripley yeah and if anyone's read that book or watched the movie you know tom ripley is this con artist who ends up becoming very violent and murderous so like the whole time you're like is what is this person capable of basically yeah because i mean you kind of are never quite sure like where he's you know his thought processes, what he's thinking, like his views on you or what's going on. Yeah. Like there is kind of this like I was honestly like very stressed reading a lot of this book. Oh, yeah. Like whether it was the filming of the room movie, which was very <laughs> stressful at points or just like Greg living in the apartment with Tommy because Tommy was like very he would like be up at all hours of the night doing pull ups in the doorway of um uh, Greg's, Greg's room. room. Yeah. And I, I just like I really loved how complex and twisted Tommy was portrayed in the book, in the novel. Definitely. It's very nuanced, whereas I feel like the movie is a little more forgiving. Absolutely. And paints Tommy as like eccentric and weird, but like genuinely kind of a nice person with good intentions. Whereas yeah. the book is definitely like this guy is kind of unhinged. Yeah, the movie builds up more to these some of these points. Like, there is paranoia on Tommy's part in the movie. There is kind of abuse on Tommy's part in the movie. Yeah. But that, like, is more built up to the climax. To, so, like, yeah. And could almost be written off as, like, oh, the stress of the film yeah. is causing him to behave this way. Whereas the movie is, like, no. The book. Or, I'm sorry, where's the... <laughs> thank you. Whereas the book is, like, no, this is, like, his, like baseline yeah and it just shows kind of like how toxic their friendship is to this abusive controlling behavior where you know he tries to push greg push greg and then is like i'm sorry i'm sorry and so um it's interesting because even though this happens pretty early on in their friendship they still kind of remain friends and he and tommy live together for a while tommy has this like really kind of depressive period where he's gone um, supposedly in London, but, uh, Greg thinks he's just actually in San Francisco and kind of going through like a depression and Greg gets like a call that it's almost like a, like a suicide call at one point. Yeah. And he's trying to be there for Tommy and be like, Hey man, like, I hope you're doing okay. And I know like things are hard, but like, you know, you can still do it. And kind of at the end of all this, Tommy comes back and has sort of reinvented himself again. Yeah. And it's almost like this moment, too, for Greg, where he realizes, like, he's like, I'm literally the only person Tommy has. Yeah. Like, in the whole world. Like, Greg, even though a lot of parts of Tommy's life are mysterious, he's, like, pretty certain, like, he doesn't talk to anyone else. He doesn't, like, get out. He doesn't, like, have any other friends. Yeah. Which is why he's so jealous of Greg mm -hmm. so much of the time. But, yeah, and it is this, like... He does feel responsible for him, even though he can be so toxic. Yeah. I, I just think like, and it's worth mentioning too here that like the book I think is like super well written. Definitely. It is ghost written. Yeah. Um, you know, it is Greg's story, but it is clearly enhanced a lot by uh, the person who is uh, writing it with him. Yeah. Tom uh, Bissell, who wrote this with Greg. Yeah. I think his influence is clear. And just how well this story flows and the tones that yeah. are like really carefully portrayed. It's very thought provoking and interesting. Um, but yeah, I think it's cool 
to see this nuance and to at moments have sympathy for Tommy, mm-hmm. but in other moments to be like, this is like a really bad person. Yeah, like genuinely, you are much more like Tommy is probably way more uh, problematic and bad than is like worth in the long run. Yeah, than is portrayed by kind of like the fun eccentric that we might see. Like if you watch The Room or if you're like, oh, this is just like a weird guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Tommy has in the book returned from this like uh, departure, like this like period where he was just gone And in the movie, we get a montage of him having this inspiration to write his own movie. Yeah. And it's great because, like, we get a lot of moments of him, like, saying certain lines as he's typing. Anything for my princess. Anything for my princess. (laughs) Or, like, asking Greg, like, how long is a movie script? (laughs) Uh, And, like, even, like, the hint, because at one point, apparently there was, like, a whole subplot where, like, he was a vampire (laughs) in the room. Also, maybe Johnny is vampire. Also, maybe Johnny is vampire. I (laughs) loved that line thrown in. Just, like, to hint at that, because it was true. True. He truly was considering that subplot. Yeah. Uh, And eventually he has the finished script for the room. He presents it to Greg and has him read the entire thing. And it, like, it's kind of, like, portrayed differently, I think. Like... In the movie, he reads it, and it seems like he thinks it's, like, ridiculous and bad, but... Tom- he, he thinks it's good. In the Does movie. he? Yeah, he says it's good. Well, he says it's good, but, yeah. like, there's a moment where he's reading a line, and he, like, gives Tommy a look... Yeah. ...that, to me, was like, what the fuck is this, or what's going <laughs> on? But Tommy offers him the role of Mark in the film, and he immediately takes it, so maybe he did genuinely think it was fine. Yeah. So Greg in the movie is kind of all on board. Yeah. Whereas Greg in the book, which is the reality of the situation, is that he's like, okay, this is crazy, um, but is sort of like guilted into helping Tommy with this movie and also eventually starring in it due to like money concerns. Yeah. So he originally agrees to become the line producer of the movie, which a line producer is like, A guy who just kind of, like, takes care of all these little small tasks that, like, the director's too important and busy to take care of or, you know, writing checks, ordering pizza for the crew, like, all these little things, like, but... Although, honestly, Greg didn't know what a line producer was. (laughs) Yeah. But he agreed. He's like, yeah, sure. Uh, And Tommy had been... Uh, upfront about the fact that he wanted Greg to star in the movie as Mark. He wrote the part for him. And uh, Greg is very resistant to this for a while. And it's the night before they start filming. They've already casted another Mark. Mm -hmm. And Tommy is like, listen, I want you to be in it and I will give you a unspecified sum of money. We don't find out how much in the book. No. But it's so much and also a new car. Yeah. And it's so much money that Greg is like, fuck yeah and kind of agrees to do it and like they kind of like push out the other mark in like a very <laughs> shitty way and yeah. like sly type of situation but yeah they're they're just reactions to being involved in the production are very different in the book and the movie um and in the movie greg is kind of more all on board and we see like them casting and doing all these decisions and Greg is like, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like very like, let's do this. Whereas in the book, it seems kind of like he knew it was doomed from the start, but was like an unwilling participant that was like, but the money though. Yeah. That money though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we kind of get a first hint at like what this 
production is going to be like when Tommy scouts out a um, uh, a production company. Yeah. I think it is technically where there he's like, I need cameras. And they're like, OK, here's our camera rental package that like all films rent cameras like big films. Yeah. Like big directors rent equipment and Tommy's like "Mm, no I want to buy the equipment yeah and once again the book I love how it gets into the details it's like really no one buys equipment first of all it's it's super fucking expensive but also film equipment is constantly evolving yeah so within two years after you've bought something it's already like obsolete Mm -hmm. but Tommy is like I don't care also I'm gonna film in 35 millimeter film stock and then also uh HD digital yeah simultaneously simultaneously which they're like why no just what (laughs) and there's so many things about like this like both require different lighting both require different like camera crews yeah they had to build a custom rig that held both Both cameras cameras. (laughs) and like in terms of like the ultimate it took me a while because i tried to find out i'm like did they only use one footage from for the final um, cut cut, or did they combine them or what was happening? Apparently they only used the 35 millimeter film stock for the final wow. cut of the movie <laughs> is what I've read. If that's incorrect, please let me know. But one thing I read said, cause they were mentioning all the things, all the expenses at the end that went to waste. Yeah. And one of the things it said was like the HD camera, like they didn't use any of it allegedly. Wow. So this is like so weird about Tommy making this movie because he spends like all of this money on stuff that like you don't need to spend money on. But then he does other things like he's not paying his cast and crew very much. No. And like refuses to have like water for them on set and is like super stingy about other things. So it's like this weird dichotomy. And also some of the choices he makes in terms of set is very strange. Like it's almost he has this idea of what making a movie should be, and he refuses to listen to anyone that's like, oh, we've made movies, we actually do it this way. Yeah, because he insists on having, like, sets. You know what I mean? If they're, if a scene takes place in an alleyway, he's like, we need a, we need an alleyway set. We have to create it. Yeah, and people are like, I mean, we, we should just go to an alleyway. There's one right outside. We can just <laughs> film right here. And he's like, no, we're going to do, like, a real Hollywood production. He keeps saying this isn't Mickey Mouse. Yeah. I don't know what that means. No. But throughout the book and movie, he keeps saying, like, this isn't Mickey Mouse stuff. Uh, so, like, he insists on making sets. And really... All of his decisions boil down to control. Definitely. Because, like, he chooses to, like, buy all this different film equipment and everything. But, like, if someone's like, can we have water? He's like, no. Because ultimately, it's like a form of control he has over everyone. Definitely. And he's like, I don't want you to have this thing. I want you to do this thing. The and whole movie is like one giant power play. It, it really is. And it goes the same with like the script. Because like so many, like when I said like the script is like a stream of conscience, I believe that. I think he like only wrote it. He went, he made one pass through it. Yeah. And was like, it's done. And he didn't read back through anything. No. And because I mean, there are one scene in particular that they talk about in the book is that like it begins as a phone call yeah and then it ends with um lisa walking her mom to the door yeah like at some point the phone call became a real scene yeah so like there are so many things like that but like tommy is so stubborn and people are like hey should we change this because it doesn't make any sense or like this line is in direct contrast to something said two seconds prior and he's like no you have to give the line exactly 
as I wrote it. And if you've seen The Room, you know that it's riddled with continuity errors. Yes. And also plots that go nowhere, uh, dialogue that just seems redundant and makes zero sense. And it's clear from watching that movie and also reading some of this backstory in the book that like literally so many people tried to get Tommy to change things. Yeah. Everyone was like, can we do this a little bit differently? And like some things may have been slightly altered. Like Tommy's flying car at the end. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, we're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, I do the book though. If you like the movie, the room, I mean, this book is good for a number of reasons, but it's also like, um, a treasure map or like a schematic for the movie where like yeah. so many things you understand now why they are the way they are because either it's just the way Tommy wrote it and he refused to change it or like oh this weird thing happened where we had to change actors yeah like suddenly you're like oh my god I understand why <laughs> so many of these things are the way they are yeah so like it's very rewarding from that perspective to, to read. be like how could this happen and you're like oh this is how it could happen. <laughs> it's very simple. Another thing I just want to briefly mention is the spoons thing, which yes. if you've been to a live um, or like a movie showing of the room, there's a lot of traditions for watching it. And one of them is throwing spoons at the screen. And it's because <laughs> literally they had like the worst set design possible for Johnny and Lisa's apartment where they just bought these like random picture frames and they just came with like stock footage of spoons in them. And Tommy refused to change them to like put in anything to make it look like a more realistic house that humans would live in. (laughs) So like literally if you watch the room, you can see that there's just these like little like photo frames in the background that just are of spoons. It's, (laughs) oh my God, it's so funny. It's like, and and this kind of goes back to like, the weird control aspect where like, but there were things that clearly would have benefited. Yeah. But I guess it all goes down to like what Tommy wanted from the experience. Yeah. Like he wanted a stage where he could act. Yeah. And like the camera would be focused on him. And the details of everything else do not matter. Yes. Yeah. It's like as long as he gets his scene where he gets to be like super dramatic, it's like everything else around him is like totally null and void. Yeah, let's talk about one of the scenes. Um, Let's talk about the Chris R scene. (laughs) I do really love the way, and this is true, this was one of the first scenes they filmed, and the book acknowledges that the character of Chris R, who's like this drug-dealing gangster, (laughs) is genuinely one of the best performances in the movie. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it's just him hyped up demanding money and swearing with a gun. Yeah. So it's like he didn't have to do quite as much absurdity. But he was being like very sincere. Like the emotion was there. Yeah. No, he was. It's like genuinely one of the few like decent moments of like performance in the movie. But like it was one of the first scenes they filmed. And I do love in the movie they're watching this performance. And by the way, Chris R in the film is played by Zac Efron. Oh my God. He's so good. He's so good. (laughs) Uh, He's so funny. And it's this scene where, like, it's genuinely everyone on set is kind of, like, taken aback by how, like... His intensity. His intensity, how in character he is. Yeah. And when it cuts the, the shot, everyone's like, wow, and they, like, applaud. Yeah. And I love it because it's kind of this... It's, like, the high... It's, like, the peak 
mm-hmm. of the production is like at the very beginning, people actually are like, maybe this won't be terrible. And then it just completely goes <laughs> it's like, downhill. It's like the top of the roller coaster <laughs> where things seem good before it plummets. Yeah, and I love in this scene too that Chris R. is threatening the character of Denny. Um, and in the movie, he's played by Josh Hutcherson. Hutchinson. Yeah, yes. Oh my God. He is so funny as Denny. He's I so just, good. The wig that he's wearing is so ridiculous. <laughs> and like, he's always like, wait, how old is my like character supposed to be? And Tommy's like, I don't know, like your age, like 15 or 16. He's like, I'm 26. <laughs> and it is, this is was another true thing where like that actor was one of the oldest actors yeah. working in the film, but he was also portraying one of the youngest characters. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird. But honestly, Josh Hutcherson just in the wig. He doesn't even have to say anything. <laughs> He's just so funny. It was like one of my favorite parts of the movie. Genuinely, yeah, he was so good. Uh, yeah, that scene was was remarkable. And there's another scene following that. And I kind of like I'm vague now at this point as to like what was filmed in what order. Yeah. But there is a scene with Greg that he has with the character of Peter on the rooftop scene. Yeah. And in the film, this is like the following scene. So we still haven't seen Tommy yet. And it's, it's Greg trying to work with the weird dialogue and mm-hmm. trying to like actually give a good performance at this point. And we see him kind of like struggle and then ultimately kind of like nail it. Yeah, kind of overcome this challenge. So you are seeing him trying to do well in this film at this point still. Yeah. Also, I do have to give a huge shout out to the act <laughs> the person playing the actor who's playing Peter in the film is Nathan Fielder <laughs> from Nathan for You. Yeah. And I'm such a huge fan of him in general <laughs> and his show and I love I, as far as I know, he it doesn't appear in many movies. No. But he captures the essence of this character so perfectly, though. Yeah. I think he does a great job in this film. I love in the movie, though, that we get these two scenes of filming. And, like, it seems like things are going well. And Greg seems really, like, positive about the movie. And then the next scene that we see happen is when Tommy is trying <laughs> to have this rooftop conversation with Mark and do the whole, like, I did not hit her. I did not. <laughs> I can't even read the whole thing. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. It's not true. I did not. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. (laughs) And literally, it's so funny. This is one of the best scenes in the movie because they really play it out like it probably happened, which was like Tommy could not remember his lines. He could not remember anything. Like he bursts out of the little like rooftop thing and is like, uh, I forget. <laughs> yeah. It's also a great showcase uh, for Seth Rogen's character in the film. Yes, who plays who, Sandy, the script supervisor. Yes, and it's so interesting to read about because Sandy in the book really took on a lot of the directing oh, aspects yeah. in the film, kind of like trying to give some sense of continuity, kind of reining in Tommy's like eccentricities. Yeah. Uh, and Seth Rogen, and at first I was like, Yeah, Seth Rogen and James Franco have worked together in the past. Like, that's probably why he got cast. But I actually watched some behind-the-scenes footage for The Room. And Sandy, in real life, I mean, he is kind of a more stout kind of build of a man. Yeah. Uh, But he also sounds like Seth Rogen. Really? Genuinely. Like, he has the same kind of, like, vocal patterns, (gasps) which just made it so much better. But, like, I love hearing 
Seth Rogen's character just like straight faced reading the lines, the lines back to Tommy. I did not hit her. I did not. It's not true. It's, it's not bullshit. true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not like <laughs> hearing those lines in that context. And then by the end, the entire crew is repeating the lines like, back to everyone him. is exhausted. Finally, Tommy is able to nail it with the help of a prop water bottle. But in the book, um, Greg says that, so this is a seven second scene and it took over three hours and 32 takes to film. It, it's remarkable. It's, it's just like a slice of like how the whole movie well, was. And the Chris R scene. So originally the Chris R scene was filmed in the alleyway set. Yeah. And then they decided to reshoot the whole scene on the rooftop because mm-hmm. Tommy thought it would be more dramatic. <laughs> And I'm I'm not entirely sure if it was only the rooftop take of the scene or if it was accounting for the alleyway take as well. I mean, regardless, it doesn't matter. But the Chris R scene in the film took two weeks total to film. Oh, my God. Whether that was both versions or just one, that's absurd. And I loved that the book (laughs) made a point of saying that um, two weeks uh, that it took to film, that's the equivalent of how long it took to film the uh, D-Day beach landing scene in Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> which is one of the most remarkably filmed war scenes in all of cinematic history. Oh, my God. And that was like the equivalent of the Chris R scene <laughs> in the room. I loved that. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, it's also interesting to point out that in the book, the book goes into a lot of detail on like how horrible it was for the crew and the actors um, to film this movie. And actually, the movie had three uh, directors of photography. Yes. Because the first one, Raphael, was just like, listen, we need an actual line producer. Greg is also acting in this. Like, I can't work this way. Like, we need to have structure. We need to have someone to do these things. And he kind of makes this demand of Tom, and he's like, listen, um, if you don't do this, I'm not doing this. I'm, like, leaving. Um, and Tommy, classic Tommy, just ignores it, ignores it, ignores the problem. And then finally, Raphael's like, I, I'm leaving. Like, fuck you, basically. Um, and it turns into this, like, mutiny where a ton of the crew end up leaving the production. Yeah. Then they get someone else, Graham, to be in the, to be the director of photography. And things are like, fine, fine, fine. And then finally, Graham is like, listen, we need a generator because the equipment needs to be able to run and not have to charge all the time. Like it's slowing down production. I can't work like this. And again, Tommy is just ignoring, 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 because unless it's about him, he doesn't want to be bothered. No. And I loved Graham. He was like the hero for like one page in the book. Yeah. He's like one of the few people who stood up to Tommy Because Tommy lied and he was like, oh, I called about a generator, but they don't have any. And Graham was like, you're full of shit. He's like, I called them. They have generators available. He's like, you're a fucking liar. Yeah. And it's so interesting to like to read about how the way like a lot of film productions happen, because like the director of photography, like the entire crew who is dedicated to the filming of the movie, who I'm guessing do the lighting and actually run the cameras and do all that shit. They're like the dp's crew yeah and so the dp just like snaps his fingers he's like we're out guys he's like we're out and like (laughs) everyone just packs up and leaves with them yeah uh and so graham did the same thing that uh raphael did and like basically took the whole crew only one guy stuck around and he became the new director of photography yeah uh but it was just this wild series of events 
Um, to have this happen twice. Oh yeah. Is super indicative of the way that Tommy operates and how just completely, um, self-absorbed and egocentric he is. He's just a complete narcissist and refusing to even like just bargain with someone over something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that was another one of the wild, like behind the scenes, uh, stories going on. Um, we talked about Sandy. Uh, let's talk about a, a specific scene <laughs> slash how it's indicative of a larger theme within the movie of the room, which is the role of women. Definitely. Um, I am sure you all know about the infamous sex scenes in the room. <laughs> yes. It's hard not to notice them because they take up so much time in the movie. Honestly, the first half hour of the movie, The Room, it's is just all sex one scenes. of the horniest movies <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Just everyone is trying to get it on in that film. Yeah, and like the book and movie kind of go into detail about how uncomfortable these sex scenes were to film. Yeah. Not only because of just the weird way that they happen and progress, <laughs> but just the way that Tommy clearly doesn't care about um, respecting the woman who plays Lisa in the movie at all. Yeah, her comfort or like, you know, for example, when movies usually film sex scenes, it's what's called a closed set, which means all non-essential people uh, who film the movie, like, so caterers and like, kind of everyone else like get the fuck out like yeah. people are going to be naked they're going to be in a very vulnerable intimate kind of scene together so like it's, it's all about like reducing the number of spectators but Tommy was like adamant he's like no everyone stay here in fact like everyone like gather around yeah and like because I mean ultimately it was so much about him him showing off his physique him trying to like be the sex symbol and he like literally wanted an audience for it. Yeah, it's very creepy and he's very rude and just so terrible to the actress Juliet who plays Lisa like criticizing that she had like pimples at one point and that other times just like being like really weird about like making out with her during the sex scenes and clearly like being like almost like coming onto her. Yeah. Um, and it just being super uncomfortable. And I feel so bad because this is clearly a woman who's trying to like make it in the film industry yeah. and saw this as like her opportunity. And the amount of time she has to be like show some nudity and like make out with Tommy just makes you sympathize with anyone. But I did want to like read to a portion of the book about just the way that Tommy writes women in his movie. Yeah. Um, so the book says for all Tommy's issues with women, it should be said that he does try throughout the room to provide his female characters with emotions and activities he regards as realistic. Unfortunately, these womanly emotions and activities usually involve sitting around shopping, drinking wine, gossiping, <laughs> getting banged or some combination thereof. Tommy's female characters have no inner dimension at all. They're idealized, but half-heartedly. From Tom Tommy's artistic perspective, a woman is someone who's supposed to be on the couch when a man gets home, someone who's supposed to know how to order pe her man a pizza when he has a bad day, someone who's been trained to regard a dozen roses as a gift of universe-exploding significance. And then um, the scene they're talking about the scene with Lisa where she talks with her friend Michelle, and all of Tommy's ideas about women are at play. The women have apparently just returned home from shopping. Did you get a new dress? Johnny asks when he enters the scene. They're being manipulative. 
Lisa tells Michelle that Johnny hits her, but good news, she's also found someone else, and they're <laughs> guzzling Merlot. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's just like, um, I, I, we were saying, we said in our bonus episode on the film The Room, the most consistent thing about that film is its portrayal of women. Yeah. Which is that they're either like manipulative or calculating or self obsessed or yeah. like, or sociopaths. Or sociopaths, yeah, incapable of like even like having human emotions. Yeah. Uh, and it's really just like, I think, super enlightening about Tommy as a human being that he would write these characters and like also stand by the fact. And there's another part that like ends up in the final movie too, where Mark is re- telling this story about this woman who got beat up yeah. by her boyfriend and Tommy laughs about it. Yeah. And everyone, and it's portrayed in the movie, too, because everyone's like, what? Why are you laughing? Why is he laughing? Yeah. And they're like, could could we get a take where you don't laugh, maybe, at this, like, really fucked up story? And he just, like, won't do it. Yeah. And they're just like, well, fuck it. Like, we can't. He won't do it. Okay, let's just move on. Yeah. And they're just like, it's unclear. He's just like, oh, it's human emotion. People act weird sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, what does that mean? What do you saying with this yeah there's a deep undercurrent of misogyny in the room um and also coming out in the book where they talk about the way that he treats women in filming and just a lot of different circumstances um in the movie it's kind of like he's kind of rude in this scene when they're filming the sex scenes but it's almost tied to the fact that greg wants to move in with his girlfriend at this time in the movie Um, And it's almost like Tommy's taking out his frustration about that and feeling like Greg's abandoning him um, in this sex scene. So it's definitely like kind of more about like what's going on with him and less about how he's just a complete asshole and a misogynist. So, yeah. uh, But I do also like, though, the fact that like the cast and crew are like very angry with Tommy about his treatment of Lisa of Lisa. And like, in fact, Paul Shear, who plays Raphael, the director of photography in the film, I give a lot of credit to, especially in this scene. Like, they are really, like, throwing a lot of words back and forth, and Raphael is like, fuck you, you've embarrassed that girl enough. Like, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's also worth noting, the the woman who plays Lisa was 23 yeah. when this film was made. Like, a really young actress, like, really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this, this, in a lot of ways, is the climax of the film. This is the climax of, like... The dysfunction, Tommy's control over everyone, like things falling apart. I do think it plays out well in terms of like addressing kind of the seriousness of some of this. Yeah. Uh, Even though it does also kind of write off a lot of it is like, oh, Tommy is just like losing control of things and being upset about it. Uh, So it is a little complicated in terms of like how to feel about it exactly. Yeah. And there's also this weird aspect in both versions where... Tommy is secretly filming the actors and crew. Yeah. He says that it's for a documentary, but it's really so he can like spy on them and to find out what they're saying behind his back, which is another like controlling paranoid aspect. And it's funny too, because this comes out um, and comes through in the movie, The Room, where Tommy's character, Johnny, is like obsessed with like taping phone conversations in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. And like, 
the people involved in the filming are like, this actually makes no narrative sense because Tommy actually hears Lisa admit that she's having an affair yeah. to her mother. And like Tommy is sitting on the steps where they totally can't see him. Um, so why does he need to film this conversation? And Tommy is like obsessed with having this plot in inserted into the room. And in the book, Greg talks about how Tommy actually like films or I'm sorry, tapes all his phone conversations in real life. Yeah, like at one point, Greg discovers like all these tapes and starts listening back. And he's like, fuck, this is like one of my conversations when I first met him. Yeah. And it's just kind of like further diving into the paranoia that Tommy has, both like in real life and like specifically on the filming set. Yeah. Like wanting documentation of like what people are saying about him and everything. Mm -hmm. So I did like that aspect coming around in the film, too, and just like how screwed up everything is with him. Yeah. I also want to take a, a moment to talk about the making of the movie, The Disaster Artist, because <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's kind of one of these like art imitating life, imitating art kind of things, because like people were saying, you know, the film, The Room was directed by Tommy, who was also starring Tommy. Yeah. And it was like him running around. And then the film, The Disaster Artist, which is about the making of The Room, was also directed by... Uh, James Franco, who was also starring it, in it as the guy who was directing and starring in the film. <laughs> oh, my God. And Seth Rogen, I think, specifically was interviewed and in talking about how weird and surreal and bizarre the filming of The Disaster Artist was. Because he's like, you had James Franco, who was acting in this movie that was being made, and he would come over to you and give you directions <laughs> For the disaster artist, but he never dropped his accent as Tommy. Oh so he'd God. come over and start talking to you. And he was like, it was so confusing and surreal into like, what is actually happening? What's in this film? Like, what's <laughs> what going on? What universe are we in? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was like really interesting. There's also a more unsettling art imitating life quality that we should acknowledge too. And that is James Franco himself has had accusations um put of on sexual him of harassment sexual, yeah yeah an inappropriate sexual um contact with you know a girl who is was like underage so yeah there's i mean it's something definitely that we wanted to mention because like talking about things from kind of like a feminist lens and being like kind of critical of certain things is important to us yeah yeah so yeah i think it's weird because I think almost he hasn't had the fallout that a lot of other actors have had in the wake of a lot of Me Too allegations. But just because it hasn't affected him as negatively as some others doesn't mean that it's not important to talk about and important to amplify the fact that he himself has probably taken advantage of a lot of young female actresses. Yeah, it's kind of odd because like um, rumors about James Franco in this way have kind of been floating around before like the me too movement began and in that way i think that's almost what protected him because like whereas with other actors and celebrities it was like this revelation like oh my god harvey weinstein is this or yeah. like louis ck is this but for james franco it's like i mean we've known about james franco so it almost like protected him in an odd way where he kind of was like, he kind of like got past this. Yeah. Um, but it was something, you know, we don't know as much about um, those accusations as others, but like it's something we definitely wanted to acknowledge and mention because we are praising his performance in this movie. Yeah. But it is worth, especially in this context, worth mentioning that like he himself has been accused of not having 
uh, great relationships with female co-stars and other women in his life. Yeah. So we, we definitely wanted to acknowledge that as well. There's also this other point of contention uh, on set, which is Tommy demanding that Greg shave his beard. Which is weirdly not a really a problem in the book slash real life. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. So the, the movie makes it more of a plot-driven point. Yeah. Where Greg, we actually get another cameo by Brian Cranston, which, by the way, <laughs> I wish there was a way to, like, count or quantify cameos in oh a film. Oh, my God. Because I think this movie genuinely would, like, win for the most cameos. There's so many comedic actors and, like, big names who appear. Judd Apatow. Oh, my God. We didn't even talk about that scene, but that's I, we wild. We didn't. Yeah, the scene where uh, Tommy is trying to perform in front of Judd Apatow <laughs> in a restaurant. Yeah. Where I think he is playing himself. Yeah. Um, is a really good scene. And Brian Cranston appears as himself. But then other actors are obviously also appearing in, like, roles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Hannibal Burrs and uh, uh, so many other people, you can't even count them. But um, Brian Cranston offers uh, Greg a small part in Malcolm in the Middle as, like, a lumberjack character. Yeah. And so when Tommy asks Greg to shave his beard, he's like, fuck no. He's like, I can't. Like, I have this other part I want to play. I can't shave my face. It's like literally the the yeah. main thing that got me this part or offer. Yeah. And Tommy is like refusing to accommodate Greg and is sort of like, you have to choose. Like you either do this movie with me or you do this like one off thing. Yeah. And it's kind of this breaking point. Greg also has a girlfriend <laughs> who is in both. Is the, played by his wife. Who's played by his real life, real life wife, Alison Brie, who I love Alison Brie so much. She's so great. I was so, <laughs> I was so glad I to see her. I thought you were her. just going to end it. I just love her so much. <laughs> <laughs> end of sentence. Um, yeah, but this is kind of like a breaking point for her in the film. The fact that like Greg is like willing to give up this much better offer of a role. For Tommy, for who Tommy. she hates already. Yeah, she can't stand him. The book is a little more interesting. You know, Tommy wants Greg to shave his beard. He's like, fuck, no, I don't want to. I like my beard. Like, I'm not going to do that. And he can't tell, he can't understand why Tommy is so adamant about this, like why yeah. he thinks it's important. And eventually he also agrees to, we get this scene in the movie The Room where he shows up with a clean shaven face and everyone makes a big deal about it. And the he's tuck like, scene. The tuck scene. And it's, there's ultimately this revealing moment during the scene when Greg enters the scene, everyone's making a big deal about his face and uh, They're Tom, all wearing tuxes. Yes. <laughs> And Tommy calls him Babyface. Mm-hmm. And this was Tommy's nickname for Greg, like, for years now. And it clicks for Greg all of a sudden. He's like, holy shit. The entire reason you demanded I shave my face was so you can use my uh, nickname, my real-life nickname, in this movie. It's like this elaborate backstory that has just, like, completely... Yeah. Like, it makes no sense, but you're like, also, it makes perfect sense. (laughs) Yeah, and there's, like, really a lot of um, interesting insights, I think, to Tommy, like, emotionally and how his insecurities and other uh, qualities come out in the script of the movie. Yeah. Um, One thing is that, like, he wrote this movie and cast it with, like, a bunch of young actors. Like, everyone except for uh, Lisa's mom is, like, way younger than Tommy. Mm -hmm. And, like, that relates to his insecurities about his age. Yeah. And he, um, uh, what was the other thing? Uh, He also... Oh, just, like, almost like this movie is, like, an idealized version of what he wants his life to be. 
Um, yes. Yeah. Like in the room, you know, he has this best friend who does betray him, but like, <laughs> and this, you know, uh, girlfriend who's with him, but like, you know, is surrounded by people that are always singing his praises yeah. from Denny, his like son to Lisa's mom who seems to like him more than she likes Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's this weird like contrast of like, he's like the greatest, most handsome, like alpha yeah. male, like great at sex and like super sexy man, but then also is like betrayed and no one appreciates him. Yeah. Uh, even like the end when he kills himself in the movie, some people have said like, oh, it's like this teenager's fantasy about suicide and how everyone would be sorry like yeah. if they did it. And that was mentioned in the book and I yeah. liked that a lot. Same. Just because kind of showing how everyone's had that fantasy before, but usually you don't make like a movie about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I think it's already transparent a little bit, but like I think uh, Greg in the book gives it like another level of insight that's like always really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, and in the movie around this time, we kind of get like a falling out between Greg and Tommy. Um, and they're filming some scenes um, outside. They're throwing like the football back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of Greg... Because, like, the beard shaving thing is a much bigger deal in the movie. Yeah. So I think all of this is kind of coming to a head. You know, we just had the, like, very tense sex scenes that were filmed as well. So um, Greg kind of lashes out at Tommy and kind of is just like, you're a terrible person and, like, yeah. you, you've been using me, etc. Yeah, it's just real falling out. And I do think it was interesting that, like, this is reflected in reality a little bit in real life. Or in the movie, The Room, when they're throwing the football around, uh, Tommy does kind of tackle uh, Mark at one point, And it kind of plays off as being playful in the final movie. Yeah. But Greg was like, no, he kind of actually did that in real life because mm-hmm. uh, Greg spoke to him in French, which is a huge no- no-no for Tommy. Yeah. Uh, and he was like pissed off. So there were there was like real life tension at this point, even if it wasn't this huge falling out. Yeah. All American boy, Tommy. No French for Tommy. <laughs> no, no. That's why they never say fiance in yeah. the movie. It's which because, is wild. Yeah, I know. It's always like wife to be. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. <laughs> There's also a lot of interesting um, things revealed about Tommy in this San Francisco trip because, you know, they're filming a lot of outdoor sequences like when they pull up to the mysterious duplex apartment. (laughs) Condo. Yeah, the exterior shot of that was filmed in San Francisco along with like the coffee shop scene. Yeah. And uh, the infamous flower shop scene (laughs) with High Doggy. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, But all these were filmed like at the tail end of the movie Mm -hmm. um, in San Francisco. And in the book, we find out while we're there, we find out a little bit more about Tommy. Yeah. It's like super weird because Tommy's being really evasive about it. And this is not in the movie at all. It's all in the book. So in the book, they, you know, are going to film this stuff in San Francisco and uh, they get to Tommy's like business, which is street fashions. <laughs> street fashions USA, Adina. <laughs> um, and this is apparently like how possibly how he's made his money. Maybe. And Greg kind of finds out like he doesn't only own a business, like he owns a whole like block basically, or like a warehouse of other stores and buildings. Yeah. And like, the coffee shop that they film in for the coffee shop scene, like he 
rents it out to like a pizza place. So he he was like able to film there because he's technically the owner. Yeah. So like all this weird stuff kind of comes out about Tommy. <laughs> it's kind of like um, the Great Gatsby. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Where you're yeah. like, oh, how does he make his money? And like, except, you know, it'd be the Great Gatsby if like Gatsby got a head injury during the war or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up like Tommy was so. <laughs> yeah. I love that, actually. Maybe is he was weirdly, trying to make a new Gatsby. Maybe. Maybe that's his artistic vision. Maybe that's like who he really idolizes. Wow. I'm, I'm shocked he doesn't say old sport a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> baby face instead yeah yeah uh but yeah so like it's just kind of like further adding to this mystery and there's also a part in the book that it's kind of this pseudo backstory for tommy yeah where it's set up in a very odd way where it's kind of like i read back on this part to try to understand it a little bit more mm-hmm. from what i can understand these are things that tommy has said in the past about like maybe not him, like stories about someone else almost. Yeah. But what Greg kind of has pieced together, what he imagines maybe is Tommy's true story, but it's also filled with contradictions and he's like not sure if it's like true at all. Yeah. To me, these felt like really interesting and odd interludes in the book and they don't start to happen until like kind of midway through and there's maybe like three or four of them where it just sort of like, breaks from the story and starts talking about this mysterious man's past growing up in, you know, Eastern Europe and then eventually like leaving the Soviet controlled area and going to France and then, you know, being like having these very like low wage jobs and struggling, eventually moving to America. Um, They almost felt like it was Greg's imagination taking over. Like, I don't know. It it felt so fantastical and dramatic and very like beaten down man, like kind of make something of himself. Um, So maybe there are kernels of truth in there, but I was very doubtful as to the accuracy of any of it. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't say even any of it's true. It's all kind of shrouded in like this obscurity, Uh, but it is interesting i really did enjoy this portion yeah because i mean it reminds you that like no matter who tommy is he does have some he must he comes from somewhere yeah he has a backstory he has family somewhere yeah and there's actually a really interesting portion though because like uh, of the book a little passage i want to read because i found it to be super interesting and it ties back into the um talented mr ripley a little bit yeah talking about con artists Mm -hmm. and they talk about the movie the talented mr ripley a lot in this book. Yeah. yeah. And and it kind of goes uh, into like whether Greg had been like manipulated this whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, the passage goes, that's the thing with con artists. They never tell you their story. They give you pieces and let you fill in the rest. They let you work out all the contradictions and discrepancies. They let you believe that the things that don't add up are what make them interesting or special. They let you believe that in those gaps are the things that hurt and wounded them. But maybe there's nothing in those gaps. Nothing but your own stupid willingness to assume the best of someone. I love that passage, and I'm really glad we read it here when we're talking about his backstory, because I think that's a really great reflection on Greg's part, mm-hmm. like including the these like mini asides about Tommy's maybe mysterious past, but also maybe acknowledging like, yeah, but also it could just be me wanting to yeah. fill this in and kind of make this his story. I mean, to go back to the Gatsby comparison, like, yeah. you know, when you see a, 
a figure like that who like doesn't want to talk about their past or like when you read about them, I should say even like you're like, oh, they must have something traumatic. They must have something like deep down that's like tearing them apart or that makes them. Yeah, you know what I mean? it's dramatic and tragic. And it always ends up being that way in fiction. But in yeah. real life, it's like, why would you really be that? you know, bottled up about yourself unless maybe the thing they're hiding is that there's nothing there. Yeah. And they're just a shitty person, essentially. I love that. So it's a, you know, such an, I I love the way the book kind of delves into the mystery of Tommy and really questioning, like, what kind of person is he? Definitely. I think it's done really well. Yeah. Um, So wrapping up the story a little bit now, in the movie and in the book, Um, Some time has passed. Uh, Tommy has been frantically editing the the (laughs) footage of all of this together. Um, I don't think they cut any of the sex footage, probably at all. (laughs) No. uh, Well, I I think originally, uh, because Greg got an early cut of it, I think the sex scene was actually like, first one was actually like eight minutes long. Oh my God. Something like absurd. (laughs) And then got trimmed down to three. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, it's unbelievable. But like, <laughs> I think the only things that were cut were the um the Chris the the original Chris R take in the alleyway. Okay, yeah, and then the HD footage that mm. was used for the movie. So, uh, but yeah, so the the premiere is happening. Tommy put a ton of money into like he put up a billboard for the movie. Oh my god! That was up in LA for five years. For five years this billboard was up in a prominent spot yeah and it became it's interesting like finding out more about this kind of thing because like there's this other podcast called um how did this get made and the hosts of that show early on in that podcast talked to greg about the room he came on the show and this was before the book was released so he was actually able to like dish out interesting stories and stuff that nobody had known at this point wow um but the hosts who all three are actors and all three actually end up in this movie, <laughs> including Paul Shear. Uh, but they were joking because they were talking about the billboard. Like oh they God. all knew the billboard. Yeah. And they were all like, I thought it was a weird church. I thought it was like a vampire movie. <laughs> there was a phone number on it. So who knows? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like Tommy puts a ton of money into promoting it and mm-hmm. they still have to like basically pay people to come to the premiere as well. Yeah. So this premiere is happening uh, Tommy kind of pressures Greg into coming, picks him up in a limo. They're ready to go. One of the funniest parts in the movie, just the way it was acted, was when Tommy and Greg are in the limo and they get there and everyone's like, hey, you're here. And then Tommy's like, keep going, keep going. And he's like, circle. There's not enough people here yet. So they just like keep circling the block. When it's so funny because like the limo's plastered with posters for the movie and Tommy yeah. has his face sticking out the window so they can everyone knows it's yeah him. there's no denying it's him passing by yeah uh and yeah so like everyone involved um is in attendance even Sandy and uh Raphael who in the movie were let go yeah um in reality both of those people uh left the project before yeah. it was finished and did not attend the premiere yeah they were like fuck that <laughs> <laughs> but it is fun seeing all of them in the same space and experiencing the film when it starts I did really like this part of the movie just seeing all the actors in there and the crew members and everybody who's been like kind of like making jokes and being uncomfortable throughout the whole movie and yeah. then this is like their awakening <laughs> to like what has been born <laughs> into the world and they're just like oh my god <laughs> this yeah and like 
so this premiere definitely plays with like uh, the facts of what happened, because in reality, the premiere was just like uncomfortable and like some awkward chuckling. Yeah. And the book actually like we don't get to that part. Like the book leaves us off when they're about to watch the movie. Yeah. At the premiere, yeah. And then kind of like fades, fades to black, I guess you could say. <laughs> Essentially. Um, And I think it just kind of like leaves it to us because we sort of know what happened after that. I do like that the movie is sort of giving us how this movie's reception has been like kind of spun. Yeah, because in this, you know, in this one screening, we watch the evolution of how this movie is perceived. Because at first, you know, the audience is like, okay, this is supposed to be a drama. That's what's intended. Yeah. And then the slow realization of like, oh, this is really bad. Oh my God, the dawning horror on the actor's... (laughs) faces yes is priceless in this movie and then the further realization of like oh my god it's so bad it's hilarious it's so funny yeah and you know we see how like by the end you know the audience is just you know uproaring and laughter yeah and at first tommy's really upset and like leaves the theater and greg has to chase after him Mm -hmm. and you know tommy in a similar fashion is at first really upset that no one's taking his film seriously. Yeah. And, but then, you know, Greg kind of convinces him like, look, like everyone's having a really good time. Everyone's enjoying this. Like, yeah, they're having fun. And in that moment, uh, Tommy has to embrace what he has made. He pivots. He does. He, he makes a strong <laughs> pivot. You know, you have to admire him. He saw where the market was going and yeah. he pivoted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, and, you know, this also reflects reality because, like, since the movie's come out, he's, like, claimed it's a dark comedy. And, yeah. like, I think he's trying to, like, take credit for its success instead of it just being, like, a complete fluke that it's so bad. People love it. Yeah. Uh, so I do think, even though it's uh, fudging a lot of the facts, I do think the way the movie chose to, like, go about the premiere scene, kind of encapsulating... Um, the room's evolution. Yes, yes, exactly. So I, I think it was very effective in that way. I agree. Um, so that's basically the end of the story. But the movie kind of leaves us leaves us with um, a few more details and mentions that Greg and Tommy are still friends. And yeah. actually, I was looking this up, and he they have both collaborated collaborated um, on two other movie projects together which is shocking the room yeah and you know this also goes back to that interview on um how did this get made because greg was much more you know he actually described making the room as fun you know he kind of talked about how like oh each day it was like how can tommy fuck this thing up and yeah so and it's hard to say because like the the book is much more i don't want to say dramatic but like really diving into the stressfulness oh, of everything and it going taps on into like so many dark elements. And I feel like the perspective that we're getting from Greg, at least in the book, is that like this is kind of crazy that this happened to me. I was sort of swept up in it. I didn't really want to do it. I was doing it for the money. But I think the, those motives are definitely suspect because yeah. there's so many moments throughout the book where we're reading it. Like that one scene I read earlier that Greg is like, this was my wake up call. I had to like stop being friends with Tommy or I had to move out of Tommy's apartment or I had to like change my life. But he doesn't. Yeah. So I'm like, did he even have those revelations or did he have them and just ignore them? 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, in the interview as well, he did, they asked him, like, do you receive um, royalties from the movie still, like, from the sales of DVDs and the screenings and stuff, and yeah. he admitted that he does, and that, like, he's been able to travel because of it and everything. So, like, you know, he could also still have his uh, horse hitched to Tommy because it's paying off in the long run. Yeah, and I mean, I know we, like, everybody has people in their life that aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. But there definitely comes a point where you're like, why are you hanging? Why are you still hanging on to this friendship? Yeah. Like, what does it bring to you? And I guess money could be one of those things. Another thing it could be would be like, maybe he feels bad because Tommy doesn't have anyone else, really. Maybe. And he's like his only friend. Um, so he might feel like a sense of obligation in that way. Or who knows how you know, um, ampl- or how fictionalized the book is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe things are made out to be more dramatic than they were. How true is the true behind the scenes story? That's a good question, you know, <laughs> that we have to ask. Uh, so, yeah, so those are kind of like all lingering questions about Greg that are still kind of on our minds, I would say. Definitely. Uh, another thing I think we're kind of like left thinking about too is that like, I think both the book and the movie kind of leave us with, trying to create the impression that like Tommy, you know, should be almost like proud of this despite, you know, everyone panning it and that like he did make it, you know, he made the movie and like yeah. at the end of the day, he like did it. Yeah. He had his artistic integrity and kind of like trying to make it a little bit of a, uh, inspirational Underdog story. story. Yeah. yeah. But ultimately I think we have to address the fact that Tommy's fucking rich. Yeah. And ultimately what got this movie made was money. Oh yeah. He poured over $6 million into making this movie, into promoting this movie, into keeping the movie in a theater for two weeks. So it would be eligible for the Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just nuts. And I think it's brought up a lot in the book, but not as much in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think it's important to bring up because like so many of these things that Tommy's able to do and he's able to get away with a lot of the like terrible things he does to people because he has money. Yeah. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like, is this the kind of like, I love that the room exists. It's so funny and yeah. absurd. Oh, and yeah. like, I'm, I'm glad that it, it happened and is out there, but like, should we be celebrating the man who made it? And like, is he worth celebrating? Like, I think the book and story in general have a lot of interesting points to bring up about like, um, you know, what is art? You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, what makes something successful? And like, how uh, how much should you stick to your integrity and vision? And like, no matter what everyone else says, uh, like, I do think there are a lot of interesting points surrounding that concept. But, like, you also have to address the element of money, which is, like, predominantly the only reason any of this happened. Definitely. And that's an important point. So now that we've kind of talked through some of the ending, which do you think is better? I'm going to say undoubtedly uh, the book. I I agree. I really do like the movie. And I will say when we first saw it in theaters a few years ago... Before reading the book, I walked away being like, that was great. And I loved it. Yeah, and I still do. I really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. It, it's, it's um, you know, a, a funny movie. It's definitely still addresses some of the more dramatic elements of what happened. Uh, but, you know, reading this book and just realizing how kind of like sinister Tommy could be, how kind of twisted his relationship with Greg was. Yeah. A lot of the just absurd craziness that happened around this movie that couldn't even 
They couldn't put it in the movie. It's too much. It's too much. Exactly. Literally so wild. And if you have any interest in just taking like a little mini deep dive into this just absurdity. Yeah. You have to pick up this book because honestly, I was reading through it. I'm like, oh, that scene, that scene. And it gives you so much crazy backstory. And you're like, wow, the stupidity and the idiocy that went into creating just these three seconds on screen. Yeah. Like you just, it's mind boggling. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, it's a really well-written book, way better than I thought it would be written. Yeah. I kind of imagined it just be like a cash grab, like, oh, the true story about the worst movie ever made. Like, yeah, well, he does have a ghostwriter. He so. does. No, true. Absolutely. Uh, and I like, I'm glad that he got one because he easily probably could have just written it himself and like got it published and like yeah. it probably still would have made money just for, you know, the fan base of the room. Mm-hmm. But I, the ghostwriter really brought a lot of interesting, uh, like even the way the, to- the story is told, it jumps back and forth between the filming of the room yeah. and the backstory of how Greg met Tommy and moving to LA and his career, mm-hmm. which was a great way to structure it because like, there's so much to talk about with the making of the movie, Yeah, but it would be just way too much to like have it that all together. It would be so together. overwhelming and stressful. It would be. <laughs> this was genuinely such a stressful book to read. Like it was a little bit. I didn't find it that stressful actually. Maybe it's hard to attribute. I, I should say I had a, sense of stress reading it and it's hard to attribute how much was the book and just like, like what's just the world right now exactly yeah it could easily be that <laughs> um but yeah I, I think it's a solid book from both of us so i just want to read uh, our patron jack's little review and thoughts on the book and movie um so he sent us something and i'm gonna read his portion here the room has always been a surreal pleasure of mine My friends and I have been to the annual screenings at the Prince Charles Cinema, best independent cinema in central London, multiple times. I actually have a signed headshot of Tommy Wiseau by my front door. The felt tip scribble simply reads, Dear Jack, love is blind. Love, Tommy Wiseau. It still makes me chuckle. The encounter from which it originated was, as you'd expect, not typical. A few years ago, I discovered the book about how this film came to be. What I like about the book is that between the many eyebrow raises, astonished laughs, and even moments of severe discomfort, it did not feel like the cheap shot anthology I had half expected. I got plot, well-timed flashbacks, and a narrative that kept me engaged and thoroughly entertained. I definitely smiled as I developed a sneaking suspicion that Sestero, either consciously or not, almost certainly injected some more wisdom into his past self. The Greg in the pages just seems somewhat more self-aware and wink-wink than the sequence of events which would suggest. But hey, I can take a little artistic license, and I am not one to scoff at the little shot at internal redemption. The film adaptation was also enjoyable, though more linear, and I miss the hypo- hypothetical backstory of Wusso found in the book. Um, however, some of the creative liberties were slightly jarring for me, like the scene where the film is first premiered. I understood the decision to place a narrative emphasis on Tommy having made people happy, but I just preferred the book's emphasis. Um, There was something satisfying about the final emotion being one of wonder, bewilderment, and simplicity. Essentially, a man wanted to make a film, so he did. As the book fades to black, there's a slight sense that the phenomenon that it became is almost a footnote, and I like that. In conclusion, big surprise, I'm going with the book. So I totally stole your fade to black comment, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it seems right to say it. Oh, because I, I read it. Um, but yeah, that was Jack's thoughts. Um, I totally agree with you, Jack. Um, and thank you again for suggesting 
this episode because yeah. it was one that I don't know if we would have picked on our own, but turned out to be so fun and wild and entertaining and very thought provoking as well. Yeah, yeah. I Like I said before, I would have just assumed the book wasn't that good, which shame on me. I shouldn't just make those assumptions. And I'm super glad we got to uh, got to read this one, watch The Disaster Artist, and also, um, you know, watch The Room again. So yeah. uh, should we jump to lightning round? Let's do lightning. Uh, so first up for lightning round, I have to just talk about the craziness that is Lisa's mom's character. <laughs> All of the scenes with her are just ridiculous. And you can tell she's actually like trying to do a decent job. Yeah. Um, so there's a part in the book where she talks about the actress, Carolyn uh, Minot, who is playing Claudette. So Carolyn liked to remark that every one of her scenes in the room amounted to the same thing. You should marry Johnny. He's the perfect man. Also, I hate this person and that person. And now I have to go home. <laughs> This day's particular scene, however, had Lisa admitting to Claudette that she was, in the words of Tommy's original script, doing sex with someone else. Also in the original script, the scene opens with Lisa answering the phone to talk to her mother. While writing the scene, Tommy forgot, at some point, that Lisa was on the phone, so he ends the scene with Lisa walking her mother to the door and saying goodbye. It's the most wonderfully surreal thing I've ever read. <laughs> so it was almost much, much worse. Yes. <laughs> That's a great part. Um, so uh, something else that was crazy was, like, the onset injuries. Yeah. Um, in the scene where Tommy has to enter the roof, giving his famous uh, I did not hit her scene, <laughs> it's amazing because uh, Greg gives him the water bottle, gives him this pep talk about using it. And in the movie, he just does the scene better with the water bottle. But in reality, the first take he tried with the water bottle, he cracked his head off the door frame. Oh, my God. Because that door frame is like four feet high. Mm -hmm. And he like got a horrible like bruise on his head that they had to like ice down for like an hour oh after. <laughs> I was like, this is so it's so funny. And uh, the guy who played Peter hit his head off the spiral staircase. Oh, my God. And like it was bleeding and he got a concussion. But Tommy wouldn't let him go to the hospital. So people have like noted in that scene, he's like blinking a lot and kind of like supporting himself, I think, on the fireplace. Oh, my God. Because he had a concussion. That's crazy. And that on top of um, Claudette's uh, fainting yeah. uh, from dehydration, it's just so remarkable, uh, <laughs> all of it. Um, so there's like a little throwaway in the book that maybe Tommy is the Zodiac killer. Also, maybe Tommy's in the mob. There's a few different theories <laughs> out there. But I like when Greg sees like the Zodiac killer symbol like in uh, on Tommy's car. And it just has this like momentary panic. Like, wait, what if he is the Zodiac killer? Yeah, He's like, how old is Tommy? I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, something else that was kind of funny in the movie was the uh, sequence where they were uh, auditioning actors for the parts. Yeah. And the real auditions uh, for the room were all like equally like ridiculous where Tommy tried to jump every actor that walked in to play uh, Chris R and like insisted on making out with women, which was terrible. Uh, but in the movie, it's it's so obvious that James Franco and Dave Franco were just like <laughs> in, in real life improvising, telling these uh, actresses and actors to just do things or yeah. like, uh, you're on a horse now and you're uh, you're playing the saxophone and, <laughs> and like they're covering their mouths because they're clearly laughing. Yeah. But I think it's a really effective scene. I like it a lot. It was fun. <laughs> so that wraps it up. 
for lightning round. Um, and that's the end of our episode. We hope that you have enjoyed this wild ride with us. Yeah. Um, our patrons of course can look forward to the bonus episode on the room, um, that we recorded. That'll be coming out soon. So yeah. And then thanks again to Jack, to our patron for suggesting this episode. Yes. Yes. Uh, find us on Patreon. You can also leave us a review on Apple podcasts. That's also extremely helpful to us. Yeah. Uh, find us on Twitter, find us on Instagram, find us on Facebook. Uh, you can email us at cover to credits pod at gmail.com. Uh, just let us know your thoughts on the room or the disaster artist. We just love getting messages from people and yeah. just hearing your thoughts in general. And so. maybe it's time for a room watch. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just, you know, break out the liquor. Yeah. Uh, don't watch it sober like we had to. No. <laughs> uh, it's definitely worth revisiting. Yeah. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode. Thank you. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.